Welcome to 7 in 7, the bonus spin-off from The Social Minute, looking at the film 7 in 7 awkwardly cut up pieces. I am your host Darren, and today I have two guests. Returning guest, Alex Gredet. Hello, Alex. Hey! And Russell Irig. Hello, Russell. Hello. A returning guest from a different project. Yeah, it's my first time here, but you know. (laughs) And today we are going to be discussing the opening of the film, which, if you're watching on PAL, goes up to 8 minutes 55, but if you're watching on NTSC, goes up to 9.20. Um, such as the the differences between the films. If you're watching in the UK, this film is six minutes shorter, so um, there's something yeah. to be said for PAL. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a thing, it's a thing called PAL speed-up. We lose two seconds every minute, so... Wow. Um, huh. And we start, we start with the opening credits, and we go through to the uh, discovery of gluttony, or should I say we walk up to the door of the discovery of gluttony yeah. um, mm-hmm. as there's a, a bit of an exchange between um, uh, officer between Mills and an officer who's standing outside um, where they discuss whether or not the person in the in the in the place is dead. And the guy's like, "Well, unless he's been breathing spaghetti sauce, he's you know." And and there's a, there's a like I, I don't know I kind I I like that once we get inside, um, you know, um, Somerset is like, "What was the point of that?" <laughs> like, yeah. What we what you what were you expecting to get out of him? If you know what were, what were you trying to do there? And I I kind of like that instantly. Um, you know, right from the very first moments of this film, we get the main difference between Somerset and Mills. You know, the kind of cynicism of Somerset and the kind of youthfulness of Mills. Um, so, but you know, uh, let's get into these 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 very brief opening scenes. Mm-hmm. Like I said, really the first kind of like nine minutes of the film. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the first thing I noticed when rewatching this at the beginning is I was really paying attention to sort of how orderly uh, Somerset's apartment is. I feel like that's sort of the um, main point is that there's, you know, lots of these shots of his objects that are very carefully laid out. He's very meticulous. Like he picks up some hair off of his suit or something when he... uh, when he brushes that off. And so I kind of felt like we were really setting up this scene of, of Somerset as a very orderly person at the very beginning and kind of just establishing that aspect of his character. Um, And then, you know, there's a lot of that first shot, the first scene of the murder seems to be, you know, it's establishing the basic ideas of like, he's retiring, like we get all of that. And it may be a sense of his, humanity in the way he talks about the case compared to the other detectives. Um, that's sort of my thoughts about the sort of pre-credit sequence stuff, I guess. Uh, it's, it's especially notable because obviously in the script, it is kind of like everything that he puts in is kind of listed in the script. You know, his badge, his his wallet, every, like all of that is kind of listed. Mm-hmm. And it's an immediate contrast with Mills because when we first meet Mills and later on in the film, this gets, I don't know if it was just deliberate, but... Brad Pitt seems to have like the most creased shirts in the entire of his. Like they, they don't, they they're never ironed. They're always yeah, kind yeah. of. Uh, There's something. I think it may have been in like the 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 commentary on the DVD or something. But apparently, Brad Pitt had a huge hand in choosing the wardrobe for Mills. Uh, like when he first goes to meet him at the crime scene, it's it's a very subtle detail that you don't notice. Uh, but his necktie it has a pattern of basketballs all over it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which he deli- which Brad Pitt deliberately chose because 
Mills is someone who just knows he needs to wear a tie, but doesn't give a shit about the tie itself. And you see that again a minute later when you see that like all four ties that he owns are already previous are already like pre knotted and hung on one hanger, which is just such a it's it's a really touching little detail. Uh, and on a on a personal note, it's actually funny. when I first saw, I saw this movie like the week it came out in 1995. Uh, and was not prepared for for what it was. I really thought it was just going to be a very standard but stylized kind of policier. I really didn't know the ground it was going to break. And what's funniest for me to note is that I I really disliked Brad Pitt at the time. Um, I had the I think the only things I'd seen him in apart from you know a really great cameo in uh, in True Romance, but I'd really only seen him in like. Um, Interview with a Vampire and I think Legends of the Fall, and he's incredibly dull and sort of in over his head in both of those. And I just thought, I, th- I thought he was, I thought he was a bad actor. And I think what it turns out is he was just a bored actor yeah. in those. And he's, he's really someone who I don't, I don't think in 2019, you need to make a case in favor of Brad Pitt. He's not some undiscovered gem, but it really became clear as time went on that he was a character actor stuck in a leading man's body and particularly face. And um, what I didn't realize, and with Seven, I thought he was just giving a really poor performance. What he's actually giving is an incredibly detailed performance as someone who is flippant and in over his head. I I have to say, I I was with you, Alex, in 1995 in not liking Brad Pitt. And then I saw this and I saw um, 12 Monkeys within the space of like four months. And I was like, Brad Pitt is a good actor. What's going on? <laughs> like all of a sudden I was like, I even thought after 12 Monkeys, I'm like, where was that on seven? And then I watched seven not long after that. And I was like, oh, I, I, I'm the asshole here. Not him. <laughs> so it was probably just because he was yeah. too pretty, right? Like he's just too attractive, oh, well, right? You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, and, and and I think we are naturally suspicious of overly pretty things. Yeah. Um. And uh, but no, I just I really thought he was just an in over his head pretty boy. When it turns out that was actually a character he was playing absolutely to the T, like mm-hmm. right down to the the littlest detail. And Russell, jumping back to something that you were talking about about Somerset's humanity. There was a very interesting staging thing I caught this time where because the detective that uh, Somerset is is kind of sniping with Mm -hmm. at that first crime scene, the one who just really doesn't give a shit and wants to get to lunch or the next crime scene or whatever. Like this is so cut and dried for him. You know, he he drops the plot point that Somerset is retiring and then he walks away from him down the hall and at this and timed at the exact same moment, it's a really interesting bit of staging. That's when Mills comes up the stairs, yeah, uh, and starts talking to him. And you would think that that's just your classic. This character is done. He's exiting. This character is now making an entrance. But they're both moving in sync with each other. Which this is David Fincher, so it can't possibly be a coincidence. Mm-hmm. It's really drawing this contrast to show to to tell us very subtly that despite whatever. Um, I think it's trying to tell us that despite whatever superficial uh, uh, friction Somerset and Mills are going to have, they are actively going to be on the same wavelength. And it's trying to differentiate mm. Mills from just, an- from just another cop. 
it was, right. and it was such a such a small thing. But again, if you go into it knowing there probably aren't any accidents in a David Fincher movie, I was like, oh, that's re- that's really incredibly subtle and incredibly brilliant. I, I it's of course uh, it's worth mentioning that the, uh, the the dead body in this first scene is the writer Andrew Kevin Walker. Um, I who, I saw that. Uh, that's that's a fun <laughs> yeah. one. He was on set to do rewrites because uh, the original script is about I don't know thirty to forty pages longer than what ended up on screen, and there's a lot of stuff that was cut out. And so mm-hmm. David Fincher kind of said to him, "Well, you know, if we have you on set, I don't think either of them were fully happy with the script as it was." And so he was there just to kind of, you know, occasionally rewrite stuff. There's a lot of scenes that you'll find are kind of compressed down. There's just paragraphs that are kind of taken out. Mm -hmm. And obviously they have to have a, a writer on set to be able to do that. And while he was on set, he was like, can I be a body? And they were like, well... You can't be any of the, you know, there can't be any of the victims because we've already cast all those. And, you know, Mm. for some of them, they're very specific body types. But he was like, well, what about this first kind of crime scene? What about if we just have you being (laughs) shot and just on the ground? And so they kind of stuck some, you know, blood on him, put him on the ground. And that was it. Like he was there. There's his cameo. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I, kind of just I kind of just love this idea that we start out with the fact that the writer has been killed. Um, because it's yeah. almost it's almost like David Fincher is like, yeah, the rest of the film is now in my hands. I've got rid of the writer and I'm kind of taking over. Although obviously their their kind of um, their relationship was a bit more kind of cooperative than that. In that opening scene where Somerset is uh, is getting ready for his day, there's actually um, there's an artifact of a deleted scene that's kind of unavoidable. But uh, I think I read this somewhere and I, I, I can't recall if they shot it or not, but they um, the wallpaper, the wallpaper. Thing? Yep. That there was yeah, this yeah, prologue yeah. of Somerset buying like closing on his country house and saving cu- cutting a taking his switchblade that he has with him later and cutting out a square of wallpaper just as a memento to keep with him. And it's one of the things he has on him. It's totally unexplained and it doesn't it doesn't stick out. It's actually even unexplained, it's a nice bit of character uh, character detail uh, for this guy. It's an it it, um, but it's I, I have to wonder if you know someone as meticulous as David Fincher. I have to wonder how crazy he was driven by the fact that they were <laughs> stuck with the square of wallpaper even after they had to lose the scene that explained it. I mean, I guess he kept the shot of him reaching down and grabbing. I can't was he grab his wallet or what? I, I yeah. can't even remember what he gets off the table that has the wallpaper on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, if it was that worried about it, I think he would have just nixed the wallet. You know, it's yeah. not the most. Uh, <laughs> but I think you're right. I mean, to me, what's mo- what still translates in that scene, even though the wallpaper, if you see it in there, doesn't make a lot of sense. The the fact that he's picking up a wallet from an, a table of very ordered objects mm-hmm. is still important. And so I would imagine that's probably what he was like. No, this is important because it's telling us this about Somerset. And I, th- I think the interesting thing is as well, losing the whole thing with like the country house and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, him basically preparing for his retirement um, and just kind of starting straight away with him in his apartment, getting ready. I think that's such a stronger way to open the film. Like if they'd have had the original opening, which is like him wandering around a country house and then being on a train and then complaining to a taxi driver. And then like, there's like four or five minutes of preamble that you don't really need. You know, like you once, yeah. once you get to and the cop saying, we'll be glad to get rid of you, you know, like you're, t- you're too good for the force. Basically it kind of, it really kind of hammers it home. Given how this city is presented in this movie too, you don't need the contrast of a country home to tell you this is a shitty place to be. And I think yeah. by by never having Somerset outside of that environment until the end of the movie, it keeps a much lower ceiling on things. 
and uh, really helps contribute to that claustrophobia. The, the, the brilliant thing, actually, I agree, like what, what they communicate so effectively in sort of the next scene of when we go back to his apartment is they use sound so brilliantly mm-hmm. to create that sense of like why he wants to get out of here. So that sort of setting up of right before the credit scene of him laying in bed and using the metronome to be able to kind of like drown out the noise of the city um, is so great. And actually when I rewatched at this time, I noticed how great that sound design is. Even in that very first scene, you can hear the neighbors in the apartment <laughs> um, kind of like just talking and, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like that aggressive, but it's there. So that, that use of sound to create like a sense of like why he wants to get out of here, they're sort of doing it without the ne- extra scenes. And I think you're right. It just, it, it helps move it along faster and it wasn't ne- really necessary to begin with. Mm. Yeah. I, I think as well, like you don't need him to basically sit there and kind of put his head in his hands and go, Oh, I want to get out of this city. Like, which is what some yeah. of the others, like kind of some of the extra stuff that's in there that they cut out kind of felt a little bit like, you know, we get it. He's, he's retiring. He wants to move. Like they, they just get to the point of like, just from the sound design, obviously this is all, was all done on set. So, you know, there is, there are no neighbors arguing and all that kind of stuff. It right. is just down <laughs> to all the kind of the, the Foley work and ADR and everything all around him. And it does kind of, and and then when he brings in the metronome as well, um, you know, just kind of like when he, he kind of starts it off and like just before we hit the title sequence, it is kind of like uh, like they gradually like the, the sound of the city just gets a little bit quieter. And the sound of the metronome is kind of a bit more in the fore. And you're like, oh, well, that's like at first you're like, why has he got a metronome? Like, is he going to suddenly start playing something? But, you know, it, the, the yeah. point of it is kind of immediate, like so certainly just kind of there it is. Like, it's just his way of concentrating and kind of drowning out the the world that's around him Mm -hmm. and it's worth saying that in the original script he was only 45 um so (laughs) so they they obviously aged the character up just a little bit to fit with morgan freeman uh the role was written um to be for a kind of um popeye doyle type um Mm. there's a lot of references in the script uh, which are not in the film obviously to the fact that he's a smoker but he's basically a chain smoker in the script and he's kind of Mm. a grizzled old detective um, and Gene Hatman was who um, Andrew Kevin Walker had in mind when he was writing the script, uh, mm. obviously based on French Connection and all that. And that was that was kind of how he saw this as like, you know, the end of kind of like Popeye Doyle's career, maybe. Um, and then when it got to the casting stage, it was also offered to, you know, a few other actors before eventually um, they offered it to Morgan Freeman thinking he would say no, uh, because <laughs> they felt they felt that the film was a bit too down market for him. And he was the most enthusiastic of all the people who kind of came in and, you know, like he had ideas about the the kind of the what, like what his character was and everything. And they were like, well, this is great. Like, finally, you know, someone who's like was really fired up to kind of be on set and excited to kind of do the, the project. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, they then later on in the film, he says he's got, you know, 34 years on the force. So obviously his character is meant to be, you know, approaching 60 at this point. Are we sure? He, are we sure Somerset hasn't been a detective since he was 11? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you could believe it. Uh, but I do I do kind of love the, the kind of the exchange with that cop who's like, we'll be glad to see you gone because it's like such a a vicious like it's it's almost like this cop is like this is the last time i'm going to see this guy probably so i'm just going to get at everything that's been on my chest for the last 10 years this is it you know like you you two stop trying to like stop trying to solve a crime that isn't a crime like the guy got shot you know we've 
we arrested the person. It's all over. Stop trying to be a detective. Like, and I just kind of, I kind of love the the kind of how frustrated that other cop is at, at the fact that uh, Somerset is actually a good detective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and interestingly, in the script, Mills is identified as being thirty one, which is exactly how old Brad Pitt was at the time um, when he did this project. So he he suits the character kind of exactly. And there's a weird cutscene that was cut out where there's these type two thugs who were like fighting in the street and Mills kind of got into this altercation before he got to the, mm-hmm. the, the, the first body. And it, I don't know why it was in there, but there's another, there's a few other scenes later on where he's like in a boxing ring and just, you know, kind of sparring with someone and then like pounding a heavy bag. And I, I, I don't know what character they kind of imagined Mills to be, but I think Brad Pitt kind of made it into a better character than what Andrew Kevin Walker was kind of looking for. Well, um, yeah, and to my best of my recollection, and please somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but the legend that went around at the time was that Andrew Kevin Walker wrote this like while working at Tower Records, like basically in between helping customers. And a lot of what you're describing sounds very like a young man's script in the 90s, like 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 something written on his own yeah. time between the, the chain smoking and the the sort of padded scenes for character development. And then it sounds like, and this is not to take anything away from Andrew Kevin Walker, who's a writer who's, when he works, I like it. David Fincher being such a visual storyteller and realizing they were going to have opportunities to cover all of the ground that these scenes would have established in much more economic ways. It sounds like, it sounds like when the two ethos has met the decisions uh, went in the right direction it was it was written while he was living in new york and he hated living in new york and and some of the stuff you feel that, like you know, that made its way into the script at all yeah well in <laughs> kind of when when they when the thing is when the when the two characters first meet they refer to being in philadelphia and they call it the city of brotherly hate which is you know like the easiest joke that you can possibly make um, but mm-hmm. all of, like all the lines where they said that are kind of cut out in between the dialogue that is actually still in the script. Um, you know, in particular, when, um, you know, mm. when Somerset says you requested a transfer here, like you went like and he's like, why did you do that? Like all of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff was in between him, him talking about Philadelphia and mentioning stuff about Philadelphia. And mm-hmm. so all the Philadelphia references were just kind of pulled out and everything that was left is the kind of what's in the script there. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, the later on the use of upstate doesn't really work with, like, Pennsylvania. It really works with New York. But, you know, it's right. it, it, it doesn't really matter what city, city that it's in because obviously it's just a city that is constantly raining and constantly noisy. That's kind of all you need to know. I remember at the time it was sort of a movie geek subject of debate. Like, there were somehow Easter eggs strewn throughout this movie. Like, we were meant to figure out what <laughs> what city it was set in. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, well, no, I mean, it's clear, like, it's just meant to be a city. Like, there there aren't, yeah. there aren't trackable clues. They weren't sitting there, like, Andrew Kevin Walker wasn't sitting there, like, waiting for people to go, ooh, wait till they figure out it's Cincinnati. That changes everything. <laughs> it's like, it, it, I, I remember having and getting into an argument with someone who was certain it was L.A. because... They mistook later on the the John C. McGinley character's name is California, that being yeah. some sort of like radio call sign for the LAPD. And I'm like, it doesn't rain anywhere near that much a- anywhere <laughs> in California, let alone L.A. Well, the funniest thing is that, um, you know, uh, with him with him being like called uh, California, which is mm-hmm. never said out aloud, I don't think. Um, but obviously the idea of like a, a SWAT team was first originated with like the LAPD. So that mm-hmm. I guess if you were if you were looking for Easter eggs, that kind of makes sense. 
Um, but obviously sure. now SWAT, SWAT teams exist, you know, across the mm-hmm. whole country. So, yeah, but it's just meant to be any city, basically. Like, any city that has lots of buildings and noise and, you know... Uh, you know, just Malays. rains all the time, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I th- and, and obviously the rain is done just as a production thing so that they didn't have to worry about it raining. So if it mm. did rain, they could just keep shooting. And if it didn't rain, well, you know, they had rain machines. <laughs> so, you know, it just keeps it keeps a nice uniform look. And also yeah. the rain actually stops just before John Doe turns himself in as well. So it's kind of there almost as like a, just mm. like a little thing of like it's, it's, it's raining until... John Doe turns up and then it stops raining and then uh, obviously they, you know, mm. then they finally get into sunlight at the very end there. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, when you were talking about the uh, the train scene that was cut, it sounded like that was actually going to also probably establish the movie as more in New York because um, when uh, on the audio commentary they discuss the that scene, it was supposed to be you know cameras mounted mm-hmm. on the outsides of trains and showing him pulling into New York. And it sounded like from my memory of it, that they were planning on establishing the city, maybe a little more um, in that scene, which was supposed to be yeah. the credit sequence. Um, and then basically they ran out of money. So I'm kind of wondering if, again, this is one of those moments where the just the happy accidents of, well, we didn't have money led to something a lot more interesting, both in the credit sequence, which is so much more interesting probably than it would have been, um, and also in the fact that it kept the city ambiguous and maybe that led to the choice to actively sort of like not ma- name it and just leave it like, yeah, this could be anywhere. It doesn't really mm-hmm. matter what city it yeah. is. I, I mean, I think there's very few films where yeah. you name the city and you're like, oh, th- this is this city. You know, like it, <laughs> uh, like occasionally there'll be films where like they'll name the city and I will be like, okay, I guess that's a city. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know that it's really adding to anything in this particular film, but I, I guess it's set in this city. Um, you know, I, I guess that I understand now why everybody is, I mean, it, it, like casting is so broad in most films that like, it's not like everyone has like a local accent. Um, right. You know, so it's it's like it doesn't even re- it's not even really necessary to know what city most films are set in. Um, you know, like it, re- it rarely makes that much of a difference. Yeah. But yeah. So, uh, but I, I I guess I remember my. I mean, I also remember Alex. Obviously, when this came out, there was that kind of guessing of which city is it set in, just because they mm-hmm. didn't say which city it was. But then it's like, well, you know, what what difference? Like n- nobody in the film is talking with like a, a broad New York accent or a, a Philly accent or like there's nothing to kind of pin it down anyway. So I I also think and this is really one of the feats the movie pulls off because it came out something like two or three weeks after Usual Suspects. And I think part of that desire to know for certain which city we're in, I, I think people didn't want to be outsmarted that badly again, as enjoyable as it was first go around with usual suspects. So I think from then on, everybody was like looking for every piece of information to try and suss out every possible twist, especially when it came to a thriller like this. The irony being the twists in this are largely unguessable, uh, right even down to having literally the exact same villain as usual suspect. Yeah, I mean, I I hadn't I'd forgotten how close they were released together because over here this wasn't released until January nineteen ninety six, so oh. there was a, a a bigger gap. But mm. yeah, it was August sixteenth, nineteen ninety five for Usual Suspects, and then exactly mm. four weeks later, September twenty second, nineteen ninety five for Seven. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's funny as well because 
on on the Wikipedia page for seven, John C. McGinley gets fourth billing, um, which I think is quite funny after <laughs> Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, and Gwyneth Paltrow. So someone's made a choice there um, <laughs> in t- in t- to to pick the billing on that one. Uh, but yeah, and then we do get to the title sequence, which I feel is the kind of the most important part of, the, of this of this episode because the title sequence is kind of amazing, um, and it's one of it's one of those things as well that I, yeah. sort of David Fincher has ended up being known for kind of title sequences, um, you know, like uh, with this and obviously Fight Club, um, and then also I would say Panic Room is a pretty good title sequence. It's just a uh, it's it's not anything remarkable, but it's just like the kind of the raised words hanging in the middle of nowhere in in these kind of um, high rises um in new york i'm gonna guess yeah that was that was the panic room was the first time i could remember seeing uh a type layer tracked into the background so that it behaved like a physical object yeah um which i think became kind of became popular for a while after that i mean i mean that's not shocking literally every title sequence you just mentioned uh was was pioneering in its own way uh i would also throw zodiac on that pile which is a very straightforward um to the best of my recollection it's 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 pretty straightforward type on on screen but it's over uh, a sequence that's edited in such a way to give it a feel of like an overture uh to the whole movie and also girl with dragon tattoo the, the opening sequence oh that yeah is, it's it's mm-hmm. kind of like a it's kind of like a oh, bond yeah. film in that it has like a a kind of a title a tight kind of title song um, you know, um, but uh, yeah, but I don't know. I, I think I, I mean, um, I don't recall. I mean, the title sequence of the game, I think, is OK, but it's just the, the stock footage, isn't it? Of the, not stock footage, but like the kind of the home movies um, with the mm-hmm. with the father and stuff like that. So, it's not, you know, it's not super memorable, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of moves the story along. Um, but yeah, it's like I mean, I don't think there was even a title sequence of Gone Girl either. I think that just was just text. Um, mm. you know, uh, but yeah, so the, the title sequence for this, obviously, um, it, it, it's, it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, like you said, the title, the title sequence was going to be, um, the train coming back to New York and, and all that kind of stuff. And they were going to, you know, mount a camera on the front of a train and, you know, film lots of footage and everything. And then they, <laughs> they didn't have the money to do it. So, uh, they went with the use of, um, a kind of, I guess it's a kind of remix of Closer, uh, by Nine Inch Nails, um, you know, the kind of really, it's, it really feels like it's compressing all the vocals down. It's kind of, it's kind of weird when you listen to it and you listen to the proper version of Closer because you're like, this sounds a lot kind of quieter and, you know, it's it's kind of treated a certain way. Mm-hmm. This is Closer Precursor. <laughs> I looked it up and listened to it uh, yesterday before. Um, so it's from, it, it, you can listen to it on the, the Closer single um, and it, it's like maybe the second track on there um and the the remix in its you know released form does really down mix the vocals a lot already but this version has pretty much edited out all of the vocals almost entirely so there are more vocals um but it's pretty much chopped up so that all of those vocals are almost outside of this mix totally um so it's it's a pretty heavily chopped up Hmm. version it's a remix of a remix basically and then within that we have um i mean on in the kind of um in the kind of you know behind the scenes stuff and i mean personally i've got like the two disc seven 
um, DVD, which has all the kind of behind the scenes bonus footage <laughs> and stuff, and has four commentaries, no less. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of people talking over the. Uh, well, yes. here's the thing. I think Brad Pitt is wonderful on commentaries. Um, he's great on like the Ocean's Eleven commentary. He's wonderful on the Fight Club commentary, and he's really entertaining on the commentary for Seven as well. Mm. Um, you know, he's very kind of deadpan. People will kind of ask about mm. stuff, and he'll kind of pretend he doesn't know, and then he'll kind of reveal it. And on the Ocean's Eleven like cast commentary, he obviously by that point he'd done a few, and so he's kind of pu- pushing the other people who are on the commentary to actually say stuff and kind of communicate stuff and talk about the scenes and he's kind of it's kind of interesting to hear him kind of kind of saying to people look we've got to talk like you know what's going on in this scene what happened like kind of asking them questions when they're on screen Mm -hmm. and kind of talking to the other members of the cast um Mm -hmm. so yeah there's a lot of kind of behind the scenes stuff and you know one of the things that's in the behind the scenes stuff is the creation of all the you know the books that were kind of put on the shelves at john doe's apartment and that basically took a few people two months to do. They basically wrote on every single page on all of those books. So, um, you know, it, it was possible that Morgan Freeman could have picked any book off any of those shelves and there would have been something written on every single page, both sides. Um, and that in itself is kind of insane that they went to that much trouble to put that detail in. Um, but then David Fincher describes these opening titles as being made by John Doe. Um, you know, because of the the kind of the the way that they're done, you know, there's little snippets from some of the books that obviously we see, you know, that are later on in the film. Um, but then there's also um, some odd things where he seems to be blacking out certain words in articles that doesn't kind of make any sense, which is, I don't know, it's, it's kind of maybe just to show how crazy he is. Yeah, I noticed all the words seem to be sexual in nature. Yeah. Like, one of the words is, like, heterosexual. Like, they all seem to be, like, words about sex that he's, like, blocking out, which I don't know if that's supposed to be some sort of hint to his kind of puritanical, you mm-hmm. know, religious ideals or, or not. Um but yeah, I, I kind of made point. I, I I thought about that. I mean, there's a certain like, there's a bit of this all that doesn't seem all that like it's a little bit nonsensey to some degree, <laughs> right? Like it's a bunch of scary stuff kind of thrust together. But at the same time, it was like the first time I had ever seen anybody do something like this. So to me, it feels very like monumental, um, and it's something that you see imitated so often now. Um, I mean, I can think of so many things that sort of ape this uh, in, in, you know, today or, you know, through the 20 years it's been. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's sort of like now it it can read as like, oh, sure, this is like shorthand for serial killer stuff, like (laughs) the sort of obsessive, like all of these things like spooky tape and, you know, all of this stuff, like I'm putting hair in an envelope. (laughs) Um, But you know, that was the first time any I had ever seen anything like that. So, I mean, it was really effective at the time and I think had a really big impact on me. And it really, you know, we we're talking about the, what if it had been a train scene in there. And I think the, the great part of this is that we don't see the killer for so long um, in this movie. And it's going to be, a, you know, it, it just it sets him up as a as a person out there and it makes him like even scarier. I think that's the great job that these credits do. The, yeah. the interesting thing for me and that I can recall from 1995 is that if you're coming to the movie more or less cold, like even even just knowing, oh, it's got elements of buddy cop, it's got the basic plot line of the abominable Dr. Fibes, like even if even if you knew those trappings, it's when I when I saw the title sequence the first time, which which really did feel 
different from anything else, but it was easy to kind of disregard it in a way as a music video style exercise, like like as a tone piece more than anything else. And it's not really until you've seen the movie that what you're watching is actually pretty load bearing for plot stuff, that that's actually mm. him. That's John Doe removing his fingerprints with uh, with a razor blade. And yeah. these are the journals that we're going to encounter later on in the kind of the 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 meticulousness the the sort of orderliness of disorder uh you know it and it it does a great job setting the tone for the movie but it really is one of those things that you kind of can't know the first time you're watching it that it's all got bearing on what you're about like specific plot bearing on what you're about to watch which is a, a really neat sort of hide in plain sight and it's interesting as well because obviously they they shot this completely separate to the rest of the film uh, mm -hmm. A gentleman called Kyle Cooper, who um, uh, you know, who kind of specialises in title sequences and and end sequences. Uh, his work is, I mean, if you just look up Kyle Cooper, you'll find literally hundreds of films that he's worked on. Um, and it was done completely separate. And then also there was kind of within the film, like as you're watching the title sequences, there are little kind of scratches. Um, and those were like, you know, practical mm. scratches that were then done to the to the, mm. you know, the, the negative and kind of then developed and stuff like that. So it wasn't just that it was, you know, like a title sequence that was kind of done by, you know, a, you know, a production house or something. This was kind of like Kyle Cooper kind of throwing all these ideas at David Fincher as to what the title sequence should be. And whenever he said, you know, what if I, you know, what if I scratch the, you know, like the, the, the mm -hmm. celluloid or whatever, David Finch was like, go ahead, do that. You know, <laughs> like he was kind of open to any ideas for how the title sequence would look. And he was like, you know, make it feel as kind of like grimy as, you know, the rest of the film is going to be as, you know, the city that we're in, like kind of mm -hmm. really make it feel part of that. And, you know, part of John Doe's kind of thought process and all of that. And so like, obviously that's there kind of in a kind of literally like in a kind of physical sense on the screen, you're seeing like actual scratches, not just like kind of, you know, these days, you know, I'm sure it would be done like digitally or whatever, <laughs> but you know, just in case someone made a mistake and scratched the wrong thing, but it was like literally kind of him putting it together and all like the title sequence itself is cut slightly different to the way the rest of the film is the you know the editing of the film isn't um you know what you would expect for like a buddy cop film it's a, a lot more kind of sedately cut um mm -hmm. you know and and the pace is a lot certainly for the first kind of hour is a lot slower than in some of the david fincher films and so this title sequence feels completely like you say it feels like a completely separate piece until you eventually meet John Doe mm -hmm. and then you realize, oh no, like mm -hmm. the way it's been edited, everything, every part of it is designed to reflect, you know, the thoughts and of the, of this character. Um, and mm -hmm. it's kind of masterful, you know, cause when you watch it a second time, then you're like, oh, now I understand. <laughs> now I understand what's going on in this title sequence. Yeah. Um, you know, Darren, you, you, you mentioned Kyle Cooper, who at the time was creative director and head honcho at an organization called, um, uh, imaginary forces and there i'm pretty sure they're still in business even though he's not with them anymore uh he now runs a company called prologue films and actually both of those both company names are a reference to the opening monologue from henry v he's uh he's really got that one in the blood uh and it was interesting i went to a a, a panel that he was on a few years ago when he was there representing prologue and their work. And I think at that time it was, they were uh, showing the showcasing the latest season of American horror story. And uh, it was interesting because 
while it was a really effective title sequence for a TV show, it was very much in the same vein as what we'd sort of come to expect from this sort of thing from everything seven onward. I mean, even I don't want to characterize the guy and I'm certainly not dunking on his work because the range of work is so incredible. You mentioned Iron Man three before, which is one of my absolute favorites. Um, you know, his range of work is really incredible, but even he seemed like they had to kind of draw him out to, to answer questions about American horror story. Cause he was this style of thing, which, you know, with like, like note cards in 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 mason jars of fluid and things like 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 it was so old hat to him by then that he he did not seem particularly excited to be there it was like they hired kyle cooper just to do the kyle cooper thing not realizing that that's a much more varied thing than uh than just doing seven all over again yeah yeah that's funny i so when i was talking about things that are sort of derivative of it i was immediately thinking of the american <laughs> horror story opening and i had no idea that the same guy ended up doing it so that is extra tragic that he had to basically copy himself again i don't want to claim that he's dispassionate about something he may very well be he could have just had a bad sandwich that day for all i know um, yeah, right right yeah. uh but the fact of the matter is it's like yeah like I, I mean look if someone comes to you and says here's money imitate your own work take the money but like yeah. but at the same time i mean this is a guy who over the last 25 years has just repeatedly stretched and pushed in all directions i think i think some of his best title work you would never guess it's him because he's got sort of this invisible hand um uh, I can I can imagine just being being hired to to do what's basically the house style has got to be a little bit of a downer. I mean, it, it's yeah. interesting because he's done like the the I think he did the opening title sequences for the three Spider-Man films for Sam Raimi. Um, mm -hmm. And then he also I mean, in a kind of weird circular twist, um, originally they wanted to get the director of the closer music video uh, Mark Romanek. Romanek. I don't know how to say his surname properly. I've always said Romanek, uh, but I could be hey. totally wrong. <laughs> Both of us could be and completely I've, wrong. I, I've always had it in my head as Romanek, so hey, yeah. one of us is bound we go. to be correct. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> Try to say them all at the same time, so I think you'll hit it right. <laughs> yeah. Three, two, one, Romanek. Romanek, yeah. <laughs> his, uh, his, uh, his film One Hour Photo, um, Carl Cooper did the titles for that. And he was the director of the Closer video, and they were originally going to ask him to do the titles for this. And Carl Cooper apparently said, "No, no, no, I can, you know, I can do something different mm -hmm. for you." Um, and and obviously that is kind of you know that's how he ended up uh, kind of doing this. Uh, interestingly, he also did um, I think Kiss the Girls and Along Came a Spider. So he's done stuff for um, you know for films with uh, Morgan Freeman playing a police officer in three times at least in his career. Um, and more recent, I mean, literally this year, like you know, uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters. I think he did the end credits for that and the, and the opening credits. Oh, well. those were good. Yeah, those were really good. They were uh, they sort of. Uh, kept the theme going from um, the 2014 Godzilla. Yeah, which he, the, which the sort of... coincidentally he also did. So, <laughs> so it kind of makes sense. Uh, um, sh shocking coincidence. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think probably aside from American Horror Story, I think people most likely will know his 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 work from the opening titles of The Walking Dead. Um, you know, which you know, it's again, you look at the opening titles of The Walking Dead, and you can't help but think 
this looks a little bit like the opening titles to seven. <laughs> so uh, the kind of the way that stuff's cut up and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's but I, like this guy's got like 300 and something credits. So eventually you're going to repeat yourself, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's just kind of like it's one of those things where I mean, obviously, he also did the end credits, um, you know, which I'll, I'll talk about, you know, on a different episode. But essentially, it is kind of the same thing of like the way when the credits are going up, you actually get little tiny things on the side that kind mm-hmm. of indicate what you've just watched basically and kind of give you give you extra little tiny details um so and i think obviously there's a strength to have him do both the opening and the end credits you know like it really you know it, it kind of gives the film a certain uniformity um you know and kind of makes makes it feel like the entire film has like a, a specific vision um whereas these days you get a lot of end credits that are just standard end credits aren't they once 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 the big names have been announced you just get scrolling credits and that's it you know there's no real kind of yeah. thought put into them oh one of my favorite kyle cooper things there's there's a great we were talking for a minute about iron man 3 about the titles for that and there's a great article about those titles on art of the who i promise you i'm not here to shill for but it's a really good article um and in it it has they have a rough video or had a few years ago anyway i'm not sure if it's still up of one of kyle cooper's rejected pitches for it which was dialing into the the comic vein of uh, uh, the more comedic tone of Iron Man 3, they had Iron Man basically doing, uh, uh, taking off his suit as a striptease. Um, and it's really hilarious. It's not necessarily as great as the kind of a Quinn Martin production uh, recap titles that Iron Man 3 has on it, but it's one of those things where if you went to go see the big Memorial Day summer movie and got an Iron Man striptease for your main on end titles, I don't think you'd have gone home unhappy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's funny because in, the, in, the, in those Iron Man 3 end titles, uh, we, there are a few little shots where um, like the, the the shots where um, Tony's grabbed in the crotch and stuff and you get like a little freeze frame on him. Mm-hmm. And there's so it, obviously there's <laughs> something in there that is kind of maybe a little bit of the original pitch. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he, I mean, he's also done like, he did the end titles for Incredible Hulk and the opening titles for Incredible Hulk, uh, the Incredible Hulk, should I say, mm-hmm. and Iron Man and Iron Man 2. And, you know, like he basically had done a lot of stuff for the MCU up until, I don't know, a few films ago, he kind of seemed to have stopped d- doing them, or at least they aren't listed on his showreel on uh, on his website. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I mean, you know, the opening scenes, like you say, they kind of, they set a mood that at the start, the film doesn't, isn't really in, it it kind of takes a while before the rest of the film kind of catches up with the credits, mm-hmm. um, you know. And obviously, you know, we then also get the introduction of um, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, our second wait, 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 Oscar wait. winner. Sorry, yes, I, oh, I'm go not for done it, talking. I'm not done talking okay. about credits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't... So I'm sorry, Darren. You were saying Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> <laughs> go for it, no, Russell. No, I don't, don't want to jump ahead. No, no. I just wanted to get this out before I forget about it, and I wanted no to problem. keep it sort of like in the makes sense, so that it was like chronologically what we were talking about. Um, no, I just wanted to say that the one of the the first things I remember hearing about this movie was the credits. So the sort of the schoolyard chatter type thing that actually made me uh, check this movie out. Like I missed it in the theater. I remember seeing the poster and being kind of like, Oh, it looks kind of cool, whatever. But then mm-hmm. I remember renting it later because I had heard somebody like, Oh yeah, the, it, it uses closer in the credits. And I was like, Whoa, this movie is so cool. <laughs> you know, like my sort of gothy teenage self was like very excited about that. Um, and so really like these credits were what was like, like used to sell me on this movie which is kind of insane like i can't think of another mm-hmm. movie where anyone has told 
me about the opening credits before of like, I mean, maybe there's probably a, a few out there that somebody is like, oh, the credits great. But, you know, at that age as a teenager, I can't really think of anything else. Um, and then I was thinking about how the aesthetic of these credits, I mean, probably not single handedly, but the way, you know, other things at that time were kind of using this look, there was a lot of things that had this kind of cut up collage, see the tape, the seams, the the thread and the, all of those things, you know, really influenced the art I was making as a kid. Um, and, and it, you know, it was cliche at the time and, and whatever, but I think it, it took me to probably a better place and like opened me up to to looking at things in a different way so i mean for me like i look at these credits and i still think like oh these are really actually quite important to me personally because i could look at like say the the you know cheesy teenage art that was full of angst that i was making at the time where i was making like pinhole photographs of like things and then like cutting them up and collaging you know i was doing all this silly stuff but you know it, it was like it was probably pretty directly and in, influenced by the look of this and and other things so the credits are like when i think about seven it's like one of the first things i think about is like oh those credits are great <laughs> yeah I, I mean, also, before we go from the credits, I should say as well, obviously, we're, we're effectively missing a name in these opening credits. Um, and Brad Pitt gets top billing for like the first time in his career, I think, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting. And obviously, you know, the use of Closer um, later on, obviously, Trent Reznor, you know, ended up scoring music for, uh, for, for David Fincher. So the fact that David Fincher is, you know, a, a Nine Inch Nails fan this early on uh, obviously holds him in good stead when later on he's like... You know, would you mind coming and scoring a film about the creation of Facebook? Um, to right. which I was, <laughs> and Trent Reznor was like, hold on a second. This sounds yeah. really weird. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah. So, well, I'm going to move on to the introduction of Tracy, at least, because we get a little bit of, like you say, the ties are all hung up. Uh, those are actually Brad Pitt's own ties. He actually, um, mm. not only did he have a choice in like the rest of his wardrobe, but he basically brought his own ties to the set and pre-tied them all and hung them all up. And then, you know, kind of as the week goes on, because obviously we're starting with the title card, you know, for Monday. And, you know, this is, this is the kind of the start of the week, you know, the start of the final week for Somerset. Um, those, those ties are, you know, those are basically been tied by Brad Pitt and hung up on a hanger and they're all his. Um, and that, that's why I kind of love, you know, just looking at his ties throughout the film, it's kind of funny. And also looking at how unironed his shirts are, like his shirts are literally, it literally looks like he's picked them up off the floor. You would think with Tracy there, you know, she would at least say to him, can you iron your shirts or don't go out <laughs> looking like that? Like, I guess cause he's quitting the jacket on, he does or the coat on, he doesn't really care, but um, you know, it just it feels it feels like, you know, he, he like he could have put a bit more effort in. But again, it, it kind of contrasts immediately with Somerset, who has, you know, a, the, yeah. a, an appropriate tie and looks, you know, the part, basically. Um, well, I noticed know. a lot of details in the apartment that were a, a nice contrast to Somerset. There's tons of little like things that show kind of how cluttery he is. And obviously some of that is to communicate like they've just moved here. So there's like unpacked boxes and stuff, but there's like, I noticed one of my favorite thing is there's like a, a Chinese takeout on the nightstand, mm-hmm. um, which, <laughs> you know, compared to Somerset's meticulous nightstand is like a pretty good, uh, you know, little character hint of who we're dealing with here. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I want to talk for a second about Mills's jacket which, uh, you know, that, that sort of uh, very 70s style, a sort of blazer cut fingertip length leather jacket, which in the 90s were kind of all the rage. I was obsessed by them. I had one myself. 
and then to see and don't get me wrong, I still would had I not worn it into the ground. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's not the it's not the jacket that I'm dunking on so much as my feelings about the jacket that that it's the kind of jacket that's sort of a visual shortcut for cool. And um, uh, you know, there's a very especially for where we're at in the mid '90s with a '70s throwback. There is a very kind of there's sort of a through line from like shaft to pulp fiction to get shorty of of this being you know you take a quick stop off at midnight run in the middle there if you like um before the jacket was kind of cool again in the 90s and what's what's interesting is i really the jacket was something that really popped for me about this about this movie which i know is an incredibly superficial thing and i admit that and i was all of 19 years old so you know back off but also what's interesting is in with the 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 pre-tied basketball ties and the creased shirts and everything that kind of surface aesthetics that's exactly why Mills has that jacket too it's not just that it's an audience's idea of a cool jacket it's Mills's idea of a cool cop jacket so even when he's referring to himself as Serpico ignoring the fact that Frank Serpico is someone who gets shot in the face for being a hero because he's Mills has a top-level view of everything. This is what a cool young detective should wear. This is this is the uniform for him. And I just think that that's, that's such an intricate uh, thought process and kind of a detail to, uh, to bring to a character and to expect to resonate to an audience. And really kind of tells you, once you're on that wavelength, tells you what kind of movie you're dealing with. I mean, also as well, you know, um, Somerset has come prepared because obviously he's wearing a hat, whereas Mills is too mm. is too cool for wearing a hat. He's, uh, you know, he's... He... And, is... <laughs> and when we see him a minute later, he's just standing in the rain with his shoulders hunched up. And in a contrast, you've again, you've got Somerset with the hat, but then the first time we see him in that scene, he's getting something out of the trunk and he's safe from the rain by the, by the, 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 the lid of the trunk. Uh, it's again, it's it's a really small visual contrast, but um, but again, there's no accidents in this movie. Yeah, it kind of sells this idea that he Mills is not prepared for this place and mm-hmm. probably this job. Um, but but another... he did bring coffee, which is thoughtful. So it's, it's very cute. Right place. I love that. I think it's so sweet that he brings mm-hmm. um, a Somerset a coffee, and he's just like, "No thanks," you know. It's it's, like, it's a really <laughs> cute. It's really sweet, mm-hmm. especially because when when Somerset turns down the coffee, he's then like. What am I going to do with two coffees? And then as soon as he sees the next officer, he's like, here, have some coffee. He just kind of immediately hands it off because he knows he can't walk around with two coffee cups. Um, one of the things, though, about this idea of summer or of Mills being kind of unprepared, um, a line I noticed in that scene back with uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Mills together. Sorry, mm-hmm. I can't remember her her character name, so Tracy. I just refer to her as Gwyneth Paltrow. Tracy, Tracy. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, she says something up to the effect of like away f- we're we're away from tractor pools, um, which mm-hmm. I think is a really great hint. Another thing of like in that first scene, we have Somerset kind of asking like why do you want to be here? And that really <laughs> set up the, the, that kind of explains it to me. And that idea of like, Oh, he comes from the country and the idea of living in the big city is an idea of progress and of like, he's, he's a person who wants to get away from where he came from and that mm-hmm. this is like 
a real like move up for him. So I, I, I hadn't really noticed that line in the past or it hadn't stuck with me. It wasn't something about the character I'd really remembered before. So that, that really stuck out to me this time when I watched it. I, I, I noticed that one this time too. And it was, it was, uh, it's, it's kind of telling because like, I feel like that's a line you can only have in a David Fincher movie because, uh, She's making it's 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 a line that's dependent on noticing the sound design instead of because she's mm. she's saying that in reaction to garbage trucks outside right. their window. But the yeah. way the sound mix is done, you you notice it. But in other movies, that would just be that would just be wallpaper. It would never be commented upon. And they don't it's not like they make the garbage truck sounds that much more prominent. So her line lands it's kind of i i don't know that i've ever seen that done before where a character is commenting on something that's just it would be like it would be like if she commented on the way the light through the blinds landed on brad pitt because it's like you're not supposed to you're not supposed to talk about that stuff your characters aren't supposed to interact with sound design sound design is from the filmmakers to us and just bypassing uh, the notice of the of of the characters who are within the story. So it's and it's not that it's it's not leaning on the fourth wall. It's just telling you. It's sort of gently instructing you how you have to watch this movie, and mm-hmm. that none of it is none of it's unimportant. None of it is just wallpaper, except for the literal wallpaper. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it's funny because I live I live in a city, and it is something too that like my my husband and I will like often comment on like. You know, like we have these uh, pedal wagons that drive around, and so mm-hmm. we'll just be like sitting in our apartment, and all of a sudden we'll just hear like fourteen <laughs> women in a bachelorette party go like "woo" and like Montel <laughs> Jordans. This is how we do it is playing, and we just kind of like shoot each other a look and just roll our eyes and like ugh. So like <laughs> that idea of like a couple just sort of like reacting to the noise outside is mm-hmm. strikes me as ter- very very real too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, incredibly. Yeah. Um. And it's it, uh, my favorite thing about, um, uh, you know, once we get to the, you know, the, the murder scene for Gluttony, aside from, you know, the, the fact that Mills is kind of eager to to kind of like get to a murder scene um, and obviously starts to have this back and forth with uh, someone who's identified in the script as Officer Davis, um, but is only identified by Mills as Barney Fife. <laughs> Mm. is the fact that Barney Fife actually has like a rain, like a little rain thing on top of his hat. So he's prepared, like he's got a hat and he's also got a little rain protector on it. Whereas Mills is just there kind of like, you know, shivering in the cold rain as as it kind Mm -hmm. of, he stands there looking cool in his leather jacket um, with his his heavily gelled hair um, and his wonderful Mm. eye makeup. Although I think that's just Brad Pitt. You know, age thirty-one. Um, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's something about his eyes in this entire film that kind of um, are, are very distracting. Uh, but yeah, mm. so I, I kind of love how you know once like like you say, there's this nice gesture of he's brought coffee for Somerset, and Somerset's like, you know, we're heading into a crime scene. Right. I don't really want to be drinking coffee because <laughs> of what we're about to see. We're probably going to see someone who's been murdered. I don't want to be drinking coffee just yet. You know, in case I have to throw it back up. You know, like. It's it's kind of like a practical thing on Somerset's part, maybe. But the nice thing about that is just because Somerset is correct that now is not the time or place for a cup of coffee, 
Mills is not an idiot for having thought of it in the first place. And it kind of puts them both on nice character footing where they where they basically stay for the rest of the movie because neither one of them is ever all the way right or all the way wrong really until the bitter end of the movie you know it's it's very subtle stuff but if this movie didn't have that in it we wouldn't be here almost 25 years later with a lot to chop up in the first nine minutes and it's funny because mills kind of almost concedes to somerset because Mm. he gives his coffee to the officer before they go in Mm -hmm. and the officer kind of looks at it and he's like thanks like you know like he's he's not sure why he's getting this cup of coffee but he's just like maybe in his head he's thinking is he giving me this to hold while he goes into the crime scene like what's the you know like he can't quite work out the gesture maybe a little bit but it's kind of almost like mills being like yeah maybe this isn't the time for coffee maybe i'm gonna need my hands free for other things than you know um you know finishing off my breakfast or whatever this is meant to be (laughs) And we've we've talked about a couple of these in these opening moments, and it's a, a, a the movie creates a nice sort of uh, a, a nice sort of bond between like very subtle beginning of a bond between Somerset and Mills, particularly in how the other characters are, with the exception of Tracy, who has a whole separate purpose down the line. But like the movie's telling you that like Somerset and Mills are going to disagree. You're going to see a lot of that, and you're bound to expect that from partners. Uh, but they but everyone else is an asshole these guys aren't the assholes they're just they're just having spats here and there but everybody outside of this duo cannot be relied upon and and i think that's the thing as well is like you know in most kind of buddy cop movies there's always this kind of this this deliberate contrast um, mm-hmm. And sometimes it's for nothing. Sometimes buddy cop movies just have arguments for the sake of arguments. Like these mm-hmm. two are meant to be different. So of course they're going to argue over stuff. Whereas mm-hmm. with, you know, Mills and Somerset, they're kind of almost taking different approaches to how they work. Uh, but the end result, you know, as we get further into the film, you know, is pretty much the same thing. You know, they end up um, finding clues and figuring out stuff. And, you know, they do it in slightly different ways. But, you know, they're both, they're detectives, but they they do they detect things in slightly different ways. <laughs> Once they actually get into Gluttony's house, um, there are two televisions on for some reason on top of each other. And, mm-hmm. like, and they're on different channels. And I don't, I don't know if like, John Doe was just super bored while he was feeding mm-hmm. this guy and he, like, put both of these TVs on. Or I don't know what the purpose of that is. But it's a nice, it's a nice bit of production design because obviously you're entering a, prop, you know, a, a, a set mm-hmm. that is very dark. And just to have these kind of bright televisions in, kind of in the corner of the shot as they enter to kind mm-hmm. of give a bit of illumination is, you know, it's an interesting production kind of detail. But at the same time, once you watch this film, more than once you're like why has he got two tvs stacked on top of each other what's going like you know Maybe it's and, like early uh picture in picture kind mm-hmm. of thing like you got the game <laughs> playing on one thing that you can just kind of keep track of the score but then you yeah. got your soap opera playing on the other one, you know. So maybe that was maybe that was the logic. Maybe there. that's it. Yeah. To um, be fair, funnily enough, is, there is this is this is only about a year or so after Speed, where you know Dennis Hopper is embedded with his bank of of uh, of of busted up RCAs uh, stacked on top of one another. So it was just the in thing for Mad Men in in the mid nineties. <laughs> I think I think as well it's it's maybe it's to give the it's to kind of further the idea once we find out more about Gluttony that he's a shut in and he's mm. so much of a shut in that not only does he just sit there and watch TV he sits there and watches two TVs so that <laughs> yeah. is he's that's he's that's how much of a shut in he is um, of yeah. course these days the irony is you know whenever I watch a TV show I probably have like at least two or three other devices in front of me that have other screens right. so you know I, I'm probably as bad as either Gluttony or John Doe whoever has done this setup but. Hooray. Um, 
It's it's I don't know. It's just a nice little thing. It's weird as well because there is a, co- a long running comedy series over here which is uh, finally finished a few years ago called Only Fools and Horses, and in that there was a character um, uh, played for the first few seasons uh, called Grandad. That was the only way he was ever identified. Uh, the actor the actor died a few seasons in, so they they kind of added a different character, and it was at a time when there were only three channels in the UK, and his character would have three TVs on. Like that was that was. One for each channel, basically, and he would just kind of mute the channels he, he wasn't watching and unmute the channel he was watching. Um, and so, you know, there was a time when you could have three TVs and you could, you could watch everything that was available just mm-hmm. by watching those three TVs. Um, but obviously that, that now to be a, the equivalent, you would literally have to have like a bank of monitors, wouldn't you, to just even kind of touch the, the kind of tip of the iceberg in terms of what's available. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I like that Somerset kind of chides... Um, you know Mills when he's like what was the point of that exchange like you know you're getting snippy with this guy about you know has someone checked the vitals and all that kind of stuff and it's like what what was the end what's the end result of that conversation going to be you know admittedly he gives him his coffee maybe as like a, a quick apology but I do th- I do kind of think it's it's nice that we immediately within this film you know within the first 10 minutes we've already got so much character building of who Somerset is who Mills is you know who he is with his with his wife, the kind of contrast between the two of them, and then after that argument, you kind of get Somerset kind of playing the role of the the elder statesman and being like, "Why were you arguing with this person who basically is just there to stand in the rain and do his job? Like you're not you're not endearing yourself to people, basically." Uh, admittedly, Somerset has already kind of experienced a bit of people kind of not liking him, so I guess maybe Somerset's trying to stop Mills from experiencing the same stuff further down the line. <laughs> He's maybe like, "Don't be too good of a detective, otherwise people are going to hate you." Uh, especially if you get into arguments, um, but yeah, I don't. I mean, it wouldn't also it wouldn't have taken much from that officer to be like, yes, we checked his vital signs. Like he's definitely dead. Instead of the kind of sarcastic, <laughs> well, you know, he's bre- unless he's been breathing spaghetti sauce for forty five minutes. It's like just say yes, you did, and then and then that's it. Mills has been satisfied. You can let him go. I, you know, it's but obviously because we're in a film, the the cop, you know, the other cop just has to kind of get a, a kind of sarcastic line in about spaghetti <laughs> sauce. Um, which again kind of builds towards what we're going to see you know obviously we you know we're not going to see it in this particular part of the film but we're building up to the reveal of gluttony um mm-hmm. you know and and for a film that is about you know the seven sins as a viewer for the first time seeing this you're waiting for those seven sins and you're waiting to get to the like the anticipation is when are we going to get a sin you know who's going to show like you know show me show show me somebody sinning that's what i you know that's what i'm after um and you know so it's nice that it takes less than 10 minutes for us to get to the first kind of body and from then on the pace kind of slows down quite a bit you know it's it takes like about 20 20 more minutes before we get the second and then another 20 before we get the third and then you know the pace kind of quit and quickens after that obviously mm-hmm. um but like i i think the one thing that david fincher kind of is masterful at is pacing and i think that this film is so well paced because just as you're kind of getting a bit tired of like you know people going on about the seven sins and photocopying books in libraries mm-hmm. they kind of give you the next body and they kind of give you the next clue um and each time they do you know i would say this about you know like because you know, from Silence of the Lambs onwards, there was kind of this, um, you know, this kind of serial killer thing that kind of went on for like pretty much the entire 90s. Mm-hmm. I would say that, you know, I would say that Hannibal kind of capped it off and everyone was like, OK, I think we're done. We're done with serial <laughs> killers now. We we started the 90s with serial killers. We finished the 90s with serial killers. And after <laughs> Hannibal, everyone was like, mm, I think we're, we're really we've had enough of these people. Um so I think it's interesting that like the the kind of high concept pitch of this of like he's he's a you know he's a serial killer and he kills because of the sins. 
I would say the one thing that this film has, you know, that probably sets it apart is those is those deaths, you know, like coming up for the rest of the film. You you don't you don't forget any of these like the, the kind of victims mm-hmm. of, the, of these of this serial killer. Like they're not just a serial killer stabbing people and then moving on like each victim is really memorable. Um, and I think like kind of you know, that's really what makes this film kind of stand out, you know, 20 something years down the line is like just the kind of the care that was taken to make sure that each of the victims is different from the next victim. And also, uh, you know, each of their introductions is kind of done in, in such a specific way that you kind of they're so memorable. Um, mm. I'd say the only one that's a little bit rushed is Pride. I mean, that's a little bit rushed, but <laughs> that's by that point in the film, you kind of want to get to the the kind of conclusion anyway. But. Other than that, you know, I'd say the next kind of four victims, each one of them is introduced in such a way that when you actually see the the bodies, you're like, you know, it, you know, in 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 certainly in one case, definitely repulsed. Maybe yeah. in every case, definitely repulsed. I, I think, and and I, it's it's funny. I think you, when you say certainly in one case, I, I feel like Russell and I are both like, yep, got it. Um, <laughs> but it, it's interesting because I can also remember. And this sort of thing almost never happened, but like the 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 sin inspired deaths were so colorful and so memorable. I remember a two page spread in Entertainment Weekly. Uh, if I can find a link to it, I'll send it your way. About the actors who played uh, the the victims. I already know what you're talking about because that was also featured in Empire Magazine, and I still have that copy of Empire Magazine. Oh, funny. <laughs> And I remember, I remember being those five interviews and thinking to myself, "Hold on a second, this film's called Seven. Where are the other two? Um, uh, it like it kind of so you're already ready for something, then, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, ah, but yeah. So before I saw the film, I think I'd bought that issue of Empire a couple of weeks before, and luckily, even though the film had been out like almost six months in America, I hadn't been spoiled on anything to do with the film. Oh, that's lovely. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I remember reading that that article and being like. There's only five victims. Why are the other two? And I was thinking, well, I've got to see the film now just to see who the other two victims are. <laughs> like maybe maybe they couldn't interview those two people because they weren't available or whatever it was. But yeah, no, I I remember that two page spread and, and reading the kind of interviews with the the actors. Um, mm. And I'd say only really the guy who plays Sloth has kind of really gone on to do other stuff. He was in um, X Two as um, uh, what's your face's son who's in the wheelchair who's also kind of like um, psychic, isn't he? Like. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it is it is in fact is his character the one that's in in legion um or no 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 because it, it, it's william striker's son isn't it it's not um it's not charles Xavier's son so. <laughs> that's my own little confusion there but yeah um so he he appeared in as william striker's son in uh, in uh, in um in x x2 so um you know he's gone on to do other stuff but i think the other actors haven't really kind of gone on to do much work after after appearing in seven um, most of them just as stationary bodies basically mm. <laughs> which is you know um not a bad way to get paid i don't think um mm. but uh yeah so i mean is there any other thoughts that you have about the film in general yeah i had a question for you darren actually i was thinking about this okay. and I, I wrote something down when i was looking at my notes and i was kind of wondering and this is kind of a stupid question but um in the opening credits like you know you in in all of the quick shots we see him pulling the word god out from what to me reads immediately as a dollar bill but i was just kind of curious is our currency so like ubiquitous in pop culture that that also read as a dollar bill to you right away or did it not I mean, I mean, probably. I I can't recall my own thoughts many years ago on, on what I thought it was. Right. But yeah. Yeah. The the kind of you know, in God we trust on your dollar bills is kind of quite well known um, as being a okay. thing. 
Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, I would. When I, I, I don't know that I would have paid any that much attention to just like what it was, but I, I'm, I'm almost certain I would have recognized it as a dollar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, to me, like that, that bears a lot of like meaning too. To just like see the word God being cut out from money, like there's mm-hmm. like it's it's a real weighty image. So I just kind of wondered. I was like, huh, if this isn't the currency you stare at all the time, like does it register? Because it's so quick and such a detailed shot. But then I'm like, well, this is also like you know the money that's probably seen in the most movies and TV and things mm-hmm. like across the world. So at the same time, like eh, probably it still <laughs> reads as that to a lot of people. So yeah, although it would have been interesting if they'd have set this in England and he was like cutting out the head of Charles uh, Charles Darwin. Or right. <laughs> Are you allowed <laughs> to do that on film? Like, is it? <laughs> uh, I had wanted to, if I may, I wanted to jump back to something Russell had mentioned earlier about basically not thinking much the movie based on based on its marketing at the time and i'm not saying i have a solution to how you would properly market this movie to get the point across and still to to get its essence across and still make it seem like something you want to go and see because at that point david fincher was not as established a filmmaker he was not whatever of a household name he is now he wasn't then um it his style was had uh, he'd done alien three so if you if you knew that movie you you sort of knew what to expect from him in terms of tone and style and for that i was looking forward to it but i i agree with you i thought i thought the poster looked really uh just sort of like a non-starter uh the the i thought uh, you know a buddy cop movie that basically like you know uh, I, I mentioned Abominable Dr. Fibes before, which is uh, which is um, a Vincent Price movie from the 70s that I love about an insane doctor back from the dead who kills his victims per the biblical plagues. And the plot line of Seven, as it had been capsuled for me in like Premiere magazine, I was like, well, this is just that, only with the seven deadly sins. So it really seemed like... Uh, really seemed just like like a B movie. No wonder Morgan Freeman initially was was not that interested in it. Uh just because uh, um at at face value it's not it it doesn't necessarily um doesn't necessarily pop, but it is a movie that I think is uh not only greater than the sum of its parts but actually ennobles those parts to the point where this really this this movie has all the elements of something you could see past midnight on HBO and not think twice about it ever again and like I said here we are 25 years later with plenty to unpack about it um which goes to show you you can you can take some pretty unprepossessing elements make one hell of a movie out of them uh, if you know if you know what you're doing, but also I think should tell you as uh, uh, a, a tell us as as moviegoers, um, that definitely don't judge something by its cover, especially not in a case like this, because it can it can definitely sneak up on you. I will say this about the marketing on the posters uh, over Brad Pitt's head it says Brad Pitt, and over Morgan Freeman's head it says Morgan Freeman. Oh. So regardless of anything else, the fact that they managed to get the floating heads with the names that match the actual actors um, <laughs> is something that I feel many posters today. I mean, it's interesting because obviously this was released by New Line, and obviously New Line built their reputation on Nightmare. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street and they were seen as like almost like a a horror film kind of you know haven 
Um, and so if you say to me, oh, New Line are releasing a film about a serial killer who kills because of the, you know, the seven deadly sins, you would think, well, I'm probably looking at something like a Freddy or a Jason, you know, like I'm looking mm-hmm. at something kind of down market and kind of, you know, slashery. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, you, you, don't, you don't think to yourself, uh, you know, a film that will get, you know, edited for best film editing at the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. Like you, you think to yourself something kind of very trashy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny, of course, then, you know, within a few years, New Line were doing like, you know, Lord of the Rings and stuff. So <laughs> like, obviously they, they were aim- they are aiming higher, but. Um, I, I, the funny, I mean, the funniest thing that I love about Seven is the fact that it was the seventh highest grossing film of the year. Oh, that's um, crazy! In, in 1995, so yeah, it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be hilarious if they pull if they had like pulled a stunt like a reverse Avengers Endgame and like pulled it out of theaters before it could <laughs> before it could overtake number six. Yeah, just just kind of take, just be like, quick, 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 get out, call back all the prints, get them all back to us. We don't want you to make a, a, a penny more, otherwise we're going to be uh, we're going to be moved out of position. But yeah, so uh, it was extremely successful as well. It's worth saying that you know, obviously, Alien Three was mostly a disaster. Um, certainly for David Fincher, who was fired from the film no fewer than three times. Oh sure. Um, and each time, each time they had to bring him back because they realised that that none of the on set ads could do anything. Um, <laughs> And this film had a budget of 33 million, which is, you know, not inconsiderable for a, for a 1995 film. But when you consider mm. that Waterworld was pushing almost 150 million in the same year, uh, it's not a huge amount. And it finished making, you know, 327 million, which is you know, almost 10 times its budget, which is, yeah, that is insane. Like, that's an insanely pros- profitable film. But, you know, that is kind of what New Line was into was, you know, make things relatively cheap. And then, you know, make a ton of money from them. I'm mm-hmm. disappointed, actually, they never kind of managed to get a franchise going out of this because that feels like something New Line would have done. Uh, but I think I have a feeling at the time Bob Shea was a- actually not in control. So, I, you know, if Bob Shea had still been <laughs> at the top, I think he, he would have we pushed things in a bit more trash. We could have all, all looked forward to eight in 1996. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the G, the G is the number eight, of course. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, Darren, that's funny when you said that about the horror thing. I had not ever considered that that's what like New Line came from. But when you say that, I, the, I'm thinking of that poster I remember seeing in the movie theater. And I think that was my original assumption about this movie was that it was just kind of more of a horror movie. I think especially because uh, the one I remember seeing had the kind of red tally marks um, mm-hmm. that were very like blood smears and stuff. And and I just remember thinking like, oh, this is just kind of a horror movie. Um, and, and yeah, it wasn't, it didn't sort of can, none of the marketing conveyed the sort of artiness of it, like the sort of be- how beautifully shot it was and how kind of subversive the script was going to be. So I think, you know, those are also things though that probably don't necessarily put butts in seats. So I also can kind of understand like when something doesn't appeal to me personally, I usually go like, oh, that makes sense because you, I feel like if somebody's marketing something to me, they're probably doing a very bad job uh, at marketing something because <laughs> I... I'm almost like a guaranteed like, well, if I like it, probably a lot of people won't like it. So <laughs> it's probably a good thing they didn't sell it to me. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, when you were talking about that DVD set, you know, that I the 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 one that came out, you know, probably early 2000s or whatever that I feel like looks right, you know. And so it's it's interesting that at that point, reselling the movie people knew what it was and people who appreciated the movie knew what it was. So that, that slip case that comes out and it looks like one of the notebooks and everything. Mm -hmm. And it has like all the fake, uh, 
tape and everything, all of the, the images, like that's pretty much spot on what the marketing really probably should have been. But, you know, they weren't probably willing to take that risk until the movie already had the fan base that liked it for those qualities. I mean, it's I mean, you know, obviously New Line, they kind of started out just kind of distributing stuff and they distributed Texas Chainsaw Massacre and uh, Night of the Living Dead when it got re-released in public domain and The Evil Dead. Uh, all of that before they eventually, you know, went into production and made Nightmare on Elm Street. And that was kind of like the big hit. And, you know, for a long time, it was known as the house that Freddy built. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's that's why once that was a huge hit, they kind of, you know, milked that to death with <laughs> sequel after sequel after sequel. Um, and then kind of gradually, once the 90s came in, I think, you know, Bob Shea was kind of looking to get away from, you know, that kind of um, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and kind of move towards more. Um, you know, kind of upmarket stuff, um, you know, including bizarrely enough, um, Metropolitan by Whit Stillman was like one mm. of the <laughs> one of the one of the oh, films yeah. that he produced. So kind of you know um, immediately kind of trying to move into more upmarket stuff. But yeah, I think most people when you would have seen kind of the posters for Seven or the promotion for it, you would have thought, yeah, this is a horror film about you know obviously with the success of um, you know um, like I said with the uh, Science of the Lambs, you know like. Every studio was kind of looking for a way to do that kind of, you know, a kind of something that was like mm-hmm. a, a kind of down market thing, but also had the potential to get Oscars. You know, like when you've when you've won the top five Oscars, everyone else suddenly starts kind of greenlighting films that are exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know that anybody other than Seven, I would say, probably kind of managed to walk that line. Um, you know, uh, kind of, I, I you know, there's, there's so, so many kind of like serial killery films in the 90s it kind of it got it, towards the end it got a little bit boring where you're like you're like okay so this guy's a serial killer and he kills people because of this it's like yeah well right you know you know like i'm kind of bored of of, of serial killers kind of trying to you know have a, a kind of witty twist on exactly why they're killing people you know like it, it, in the end you just end it with a bunch of dead bodies so what what was the there was a TV series. This is if, like within the last decade. What was it? Called? I think it was called The Following, which was yes, sort of with Kevin Bacon. Yeah, kind of the last yeah. nail in the coffin of this whole thing because it was about a charismatic, almost cult leader serial killer, but all of his stuff, that, all of his yeah. killings were inspired by Edgar Allan Poe, which is as like, <laughs> which is as like. 10th grade creative writing a premise as it gets like like it it legitimately wouldn't shock me if that series wasn't the final form of a spec spec feature that had been written in like 1996 yeah i actually the funny thing about the following is uh, obviously kevin bacon did it because bernie madoff took all his money so um That that was and that and that series only kind of got greenlit because Kevin Bacon was starring in it and so, you know yeah it was it, it was that kind of weird thing of like um you know yeah like you say they would put on like Edgar Allan Poe masks and kill people and it's mm-hmm. like this is the weirdest thing in the world although it did bring <laughs> you know it did bring it did bring me to the attention of Valerie Curry Curry and she is she's a wonderful actress so. Uh, unfortunately she was kind of saddled with that show for like three seasons um but yeah it just i, I don't know it's it's kind of, it's kind of weird how, like that show was like it just it had so many talented people it just kind of ended up um interestingly it was created by kevin williamson obviously known for uh for writing uh, scream the first, yeah. first two screams yeah and dawson's creek yeah but uh, I which do... itself does dawson's creek had like a there was a that horror episode was it in the first series or second season mm. i can't remember of, of dawson's creek and it was like a 
uh, well, they didn't show it over here because it was too graphic. So. <laughs> so, oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. They they missed it out. They skipped it and they showed it like two or three months later at like oh, nine wow. o'clock in the evening. Yeah, it was it hmm. was a, it was a big thing over here. But I do remember thinking about the following that it it genuinely seemed like an idea that they may have been going for a revival of sorts, but it really felt like an idea that was well past its time. Uh, primarily because of, thanks to movies like Seven, it became such a prevalent thing in the 90s uh, to try and recapture that magic again. And I feel, I, I think as well, you know, Kevin Williamson's kind of responsible for this, but by the time you've had Scream in, uh, mm-hmm. in what was it, like 90, 97, 98, somewhere around there, mm-hmm. um, and by the time you've had that, it's like, well, you know, it's kind of said everything you can about slashes, so it, it, you can't mm-hmm. really do that much. There's not really much room to move. Um and I don't, th- I don't think Hannibal even really has that many people being killed in it, um, you know. Although it does, is, is, is that where Ray, Ray Liotta has his head open and uh, that's Hannibal's the one. eating his brains? Yeah. <laughs> Although, I, but, and I feel like that one's kind of, that one's kind of an outlier anyway, because it's not as much of a serial killer drama as it is just sort of a follow-up to one. Um, it does have its grisly elements, but it doesn't really share a whole lot else with the genre. Not the same way that you could conceivably make a double feature out of Silence of the Lambs in Seven if you were so inclined. Um, well, I feel like we said about as much as we possibly can about the opening to this film. Obviously, I have six <laughs> more episodes to go into the the ins and outs of Seven. Um, I don't think any of these episodes are going to be particularly short. I feel like, you know, this is a film that I love so much. Um, you know, I, I tried to think about, like, what is my kind of, like, top five David Finchers? And, you know, most of them will kind of move around, but I'm sure seven is either number one or number two, depending on the day, um, yeah. you know, and, and I, I think this one's tough to beat. Yeah. I mean, it's just every, like everything. I think the fact that he got so much control, like immediately in his career kind of helped, like, you know, after the mess that was Alien 3, the fact that David Finch was like, look, I don't want to go through that again. And the fact that, you know, all of the actors kind of advocated for everything that he wanted to do <laughs> with, with the film was kind of helpful mm. as well. You know, if you've got Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman in your corner, you can pretty much c- kind of guarantee that you're going to be able to do whatever <laughs> you need to do. Um, and I think just everything in it is so kind of controlled. And, you know, it's just immediately everything that you think of when you think of David Fincher is in this film. Um, and I think since, you know, since then he's gone on to kind of refine exactly what, you know, d- you know, being a David Fincher film means. And this is still a little bit rough in some parts. Um, but I still I still love it so much, you know, after after all these years. And, you know, I've probably watched it at least two or three dozen times, um, you know, and I still get the jump scare when Sloth comes along anyway. So it's, you know, <laughs> it's such a great film. <laughs> That's a rough one. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and I love that. I love the preachy doctor who's like, you know, this guy's been through a lot of pain and he still has hell to look forward to. You're like, doctor, the guy's chewed his tongue off and been t- tortured for a year. Stop yeah. being so stop being so judgy. Um, yeah, every every everybody, every every sort of fringe character in the nearly every fringe character in this movie really has a lot to say. Like, <laughs> like nobody's just, uh, you know, between between breathing spaghetti sauce and uh, um, and and hell to look forward to. Like nobody's just getting on with their day after they've uh, yeah. after they've. I understand this. why Somerset wants to retire, quite frankly. Uh, yeah. so, so let's go to plugs. Uh, Russell, is there anything that you wish to plug? Sure. Uh, you can check out my podcast, Art Palace, uh, from the Cincinnati Art Museum, um, and follow me on Twitter at Russell Eyrig. 
Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Menace2Snacks, Menace, the number two, and Snacks. Lately, a lot of the content seems to have been devoted to uh, the new movie Cats that's coming out. I don't know if you guys have heard a lot about that. It seems pretty fertile <laughs> subject matter for some reason. Um uh, so you can follow me there at Menace to Snacks on Twitter. Also, please feel free to check out SteelApeSessions.com, uh, monthly mixtapes guaranteed, new Spotify mix at the top uh, or close to the top of every single month uh, for about five years now. Um, uh, do enjoy. And you can find me on many previous projects. Uh, and over this week, I'm going to promote each of them individually because believe it or not, I have nine podcasts now that I have done this podcast. Um, so I'm, I'm going to start with the first one I ever did, which was A Talking Cast. I'm only on it like five or six times, uh, but it breaks down the film A Talking Cat um, minute by minute. And it was <laughs> extremely insane to even consider that as a project. Um, but we did it. And for the final episode, we actually had an interview with the writer of the film, uh, which is a wonderful episode. And uh, the writer of that film is, is a wonderful guy. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's he's friends with me on Facebook and he follows me on Twitter. And he's, you know, he's he's a uh, it's really funny because in his interview, he kind of talks about, you know, writing for kind of like low budget you know studios and stuff and it's kind of interesting to hear about you know like a, a writer who just kind of just wants to get stuff made and is kind of willing to take you know uh any kind of gig to kind of get it done um and he you know he kind of i guess it, it a talking cat kind of started out as a one kind of idea and by the time they'd finished it was completely different um, and that kind of feels like the opposite of what seven <laughs> had going for it whereas you know the seven had a director who kind of knew what he wanted to do uh, talking cat had a director who had a uh, two locations and enough money to hire a few actors and three days to shoot it so you know surprising to me because you so often hear the two movies mentioned in the same yes breath. i know i mean there are many there are many essays that have been written about both um so you can find that on any pod uh you know catches or whatever and you can find us on twitter although i'm not sure why you would follow it now you know four years after it finished at a talking cast uh, thanks to both of you for being my guest here today. My pleasure. Very much mine too. And otherwise, goodbye. <laughs>